Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, welcome to episode 171 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with David Park. And our guest on tonight's show is Greg Schaefer. Uh, Greg spent time in the Coast Guard, and then the FBI, and then the FBI hostage rescue team. And today he runs a uh, security company, uh, writes about active shooters. And uh, we're going to talk to him all about his career. We're really excited to have him on the show. I think you're the first HRT guy we've had on the show since uh, Danny Colson. So uh, we really appreciate it, Greg. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, Danny's a very good friend of mine, and he's a legend in the HRT. Yeah, he's the, he's the man. Uh, those were, We had him on twice, a lot of fun. Um, after people watch this, they should go check out Danny's episodes. Uh, so, Greg, I mean, just starting off uh, from the top, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and sort of what your pathway was towards uh, your service in the Coast Guard. Sure. Um, you know, I have three brothers with four boys in the family. Uh, my mom and dad were married for over 50 years. Uh, grew up in really a uh, leave it to beaver type household. Uh, my dad was an IBMer. And uh, I just, my dad was an IBMer. And about every two or three years, we would move someplace different. So I went to three different high schools. Um, but as a result of moving around so much, I think it did help my brothers and I to develop a closer relationship. So, uh, you know, we um, lived all over the country, and I remember at one point in time, we were um, uh, traveling somewhere, and we were in, in an airport, and I saw these West Point cadets in their dress gray uniform and their capes, and I had no idea who they were or what they represented. I asked my dad, and he identified them as West Point cadets, and he said, I was probably about 12, 13 at the time, and he sent me over there to talk to them, and that's really how I got interested in the academies. And... Um, Ended up going to most of my high school years in Paris, France, returned to New Jersey. That was quite a culture shock, Paris, France, and New Jersey. Uh, ended up spending my senior year in New Jersey um, where I, I played football, and the athletic director uh, had a brother who went to the Coast Guard Academy. And he, had, he knew I was looking at West Point and looking at Annapolis and Air Force Academy. Now, you have to remember this is 1979, so being in the military wasn't all that cool. 
you know, we had Jimmy Carter as president. The military was not that place you wanted to be uh, to, 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 you know, to have chicks and, and, you know, and be cool. Uh, fortunately, it's that, fortunately, it's turned around now and being in the military is a cool thing. So um, I ended up having an appointment to Annapolis and also had an appointment to the Coast Guard Academy. The Coast Guard Academy is the only academy that is a national competition. No congressional appointments are required. So I got accepted to both. And it came down to the Coast Guard's peacetime mission. Uh, I love their search and rescue. I love their drug interdiction. So I went to the Coast Guard Academy, did four years there, got a Bachelor of Science degree, uh, played football there, uh, had a great time, made lifelong friends, of which you know, I, I stay in contact with today, um, and did seven years in the Coast Guard. And the highlight of my Coast Guard career was being selected to command a Coast Guard cutter uh, 82 foot patrol boat out of Fort Myers Beach, Florida. Uh, this is in the mid to late 80s when the drug trade was was at its height, and we were out there doing search and rescue cases and looking for drug smugglers. And uh, last I heard, I still have the record for the largest marijuana seizure in the Gulf of Mexico, which was 45 tons. Wow! So, uh, shit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. That's a lot of marijuana. <laughs> You know, um, so I had a great time, had a great crew. You know, the crew makes the, you know, makes the team. I just had a fantastic crew. The name of the ship was the Coast Guard Cutter Point Steel. It was 82 feet long, had a crew of 10. And I'm a 24-year-old Lieutenant JG, and I'm the commanding officer of the ship. So, uh, you know, it, it's incredible the amount of responsibility that the Coast Guard gives us young officers and senior enlisted people. Um, so anyway, the seven years in the Coast Guard, I loved it. Uh, ended up getting married, having a kid, knowing that my time in the Coast Guard would spend would make me spend more time at sea. So about this time, my younger brother joined the Secret Service and got into federal law enforcement. And at the same time, uh, I'm being recruited heavily by the DEA because I work very closely with them in the Coast Guard doing drug interdiction. And they're trying to recruit me heavily to get into the DEA. So uh, in 1994, I pretty much applied to every law enforcement agency. There is no demand, all the three-letter agencies. Uh, the FBI called, said they were interested. And uh, so I went to the FBI, and that's how the FBI career started. Great. If you don't mind, um, can we talk a little bit about the Coast Guard? Because it's something we've never really talked about. And people don't necessarily the understand their, their mission. And yeah, and I mean, people don't understand that prior to 9-11, like the Coast Guard was probably killing more people than any, you know, than anybody. And I, and I mean that in the drug interdiction mission that, the, the Coast Guard has always been active worldwide. Can you tell us about the Coast Guard, about a cutter? Because why is it called a cutter? I think there are some interesting things there. And sort of like, how? what's the range on a cutter? Like, how far would you guys go? How long would you be out? Well, the, the U.S. Coast Guard itself um, cannot fall under the Department of Defense because the Coast Guard has law enforcement authority. Again, the Posse Comitatus Act, I don't want to get in the weeds about that but the military cannot enforce laws in the United States. So Department of Defense entities cannot arrest somebody. So the Coast Guard has arrest powers and therefore can never fall under the Department of Defense. So prior to 9-11, the Coast Guard fell under the Department of Transportation. After 9-11, they went into Homeland Security. So a, law, a Coast Guard officer can, you know, he carries a gun, carries a badge when he does his law enforcement boardings on, on the high seas, and he can place people under arrest and maintain that trust chain of custody for the, the seizures or whatever the violation is that he arrested. But, uh, individual cor correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but can't the Coast Guard also be federalized during wartime? It is. During wartime, the Coast Guard does fall on the Department of the Navy. 
as we say in the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard is that hard nucleus about which the Navy forms in times of war. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, and getting back to your question, you know, the, uh, the internal, um, let's see, uh, what's it, the, the cutter service back in the you know, late 1700s is where that word cutter came from. Uh, the, the U.S. Coast Guard is actually older than the U.S. Navy. Um, and the amount of time that those cutters stay at sea, you know, depends on the size of the vessel and the size of the fuel tanks. So an 82-foot patrol boat out of Fort Myers Beach, Florida, which I commanded, we'd be underway for about four to seven days at a time. Okay. Uh, at about day four or five or six, we may need some more fuel. So we would hook up with another larger Coast Guard vessel out in the Gulf of Mexico and refuel. Oftentimes, a large Coast Guard cutter would have four or five patrol boats, 82 patrol boats assigned to it to do a you know, do a blockade of an area where they knew some drug smugglers are coming in. But, um, you know, I made multiple drug seizures, uh, you know, on my patrol boat, and they were all DEA intelligence driven. Um, you know, we were very close with the DEA and their informants. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's just a lot of fun being out in the Gulf of Mexico uh, on your own ship where you're, you know, called the skipper and you are ultimately responsible. You guys, for military guys, you need the commanding officers. He's responsible for everything that happens. You know, every everything good, everything bad falls on the, on the commanding officer's shoulders. And fortunately, I had just had an incredible crew of people and we had a lot of fun. We made a lot of drug seizures. We saved a lot of lives and hands down the best two years of my life in the Coast Guard. So on a ship of, of 10 uh, people, I, I imagine, you know, you have you have to have your mechanics and you have to have, you know, everybody who can do everything for the ship. But they also all have to be cross-trained into seizures and law enforcement and yeah. that, that type of thing? Exactly. With a, a crew that small, everybody had gone to law enforcement boarding officer school. So, yeah, we had, you know, my executive officer was a senior E8. Uh, and then we had a chief mechanic who was an E7. And then I was an O2, lieutenant junior grade. And then you had a couple of petty officers and then a couple of non-rates on both the, you know, the shipboard side and the engineering side. So, you know, half the people were engineers, the other half were, you know, deckhands. And, um, you know, we worked 24 seven, you know, in you know, three shifts a day, eight hour shifts. Um, so again, it, it, we had a lot of fun, um, you know, being that part of the country, South Florida, dry tortugas was nearby Fort Jefferson. We go out to Key West for port calls, um, you know, we, 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 we worked hard and we play hard. That's awesome. And so you, uh, took the offer from the FBI, went to the FBI Academy. Uh, and what year was this? It was 1995. Okay. And what was it? What was that experience like going through training to become an FBI agent? Uh, you know, um, they kind of spoon feed you the things you need to know. I mean, uh, academically, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's not that hard, uh, you know, but they don't want anybody to fail. So if you pay attention and you go to review classes before the exams, you know, you have to be a total moron to pass the, to fail the exams. So, uh, you know, academically, uh, if you just paid attention, uh, it wasn't that difficult physically, uh, you know, for me, of course, it wasn't that hard because I always stayed in shape, but for a lot of people in you know, a physical Fitness requirements of the FBI Academy was very difficult. Um, it was, I think, 21 weeks long, if I remember correctly. Um, for the first half of that, you're living with a roommate, 
you know, so you're, you know, 31 year old man, I got in when I was 31. So you're 31 years old, you know, in like living in the college dorm with a roommate and sharing a bathroom with two other people. So one bathroom for four people. So yeah, <laughs> that, that's the hardest part. It's just getting accustomed to doing that again. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe they would make an officer of the Coast Guard live in those conditions. <laughs> Sounds like living in New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then the second half of the Academy, FBI Academy, you get your own room and, and treat them more like a human. But, uh, you know, it, 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 to me, the FBI Academy was just a lot of fun. I mean, you're, you're driving cars fast, you're shooting a lot of weapons. You're, you're doing arrests, you know, you're working in Hogan's Alley, which is very famous, you know, the, the most robbed bank of America is the, the bank in Hogan's Alley, which is a fake town on the FBI uh, base in Quantico. And um, the training was just a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed actually every minute of it. And then upon graduation, my first office of assignment was in San Francisco. And you were uh, assigned to gangs and drugs. I was on the, I was the Gang and Drug Task Force in San Francisco, exactly. And it, interesting to talk about that as well. Uh, in 1995, that was the height of the Unabomber, uh, the Unabomber Task Force. So half of my graduating class from the FBI Academy was assigned to the San Francisco Division because that's where they knew the Unabomber was from. And they took literally half of the senior agents in the entire division and put them on the Unabomber Task Force. They wanted to find a Unabomber. That was, their, that was the, the FBI's major goal at that time. So they had to backfill all those agents not working regular crimes like drugs, gangs, white-collar crime, all that stuff. So they had to backfill that. So three graduating classes in a row from Quantico, half of the agents went to San Francisco. So I was kind of caught up in that uh, wave and uh, spent three years in San Francisco – I'm sorry, four years in San Francisco and was assigned to a drug task force. We did gangs as well and um, you know, had a lot of fun. Worked with local cops on the task force. And they taught me a lot of skills, a lot of street smarts. I gleaned from them, you know, kicking in doors, uh, arresting people. Um, I, I got some great stories in San. I got as many stories from San Francisco as I do from HRT. It's some great arrest stories. Well, hit, hit us with one of the better ones. All right, hit one. The guy was the, the um, uh, what was the nickname? Um, the bicycle bandit. He had robbed twelve banks in San Francisco, and he robbed them on a bicycle. And we had good uh, surveillance <laughs> videos of this guy. And he had a unibrow. I mean, like he liked like two caterpillars on his eyebrow. And you know, the bank cameras back in those days, they weren't HD. They're really poor quality. But the one thing that stood out stood out on this guy was his these huge eyebrows. So anyway, he robbed his 12th bank. The San Francisco Division of the FBI put out one of the posters, and they had commercials on television. They put his picture up on billboards in the San Francisco area. Milk crates. And sure, sure, sure as nothing, uh, about a week after all that happened, after his 12th bank robbery, we get a, a, a tip, a phone call. I think the bank robbery looking for is this guy, and here's where he's staying. And he was staying at a, at a, a, a hotel, a fleabag hotel up in Santa Rosa, California. So I'm the case officer on this, a case agent. So me and my partner, we go up there, and we, uh, knock, we talk to the manager of the hotel, and we showed a picture, a greeny picture of this guy and say, is this guy staying here? And the manager of the hotel says, yeah, it looks like the guy staying in, you know, you know, you know, on the second floor. And this is one of those garden style uh, hotels where you have a parking lot and, you know, the railings and the doors are behind the railings. So you can sit in the parking lot of the hotel and see all the rooms. So we park across the street, take a pair of binoculars out, look at the room that he's supposed to be in. And we're there for literally five minutes. And this guy walks out the door. Walks across, you know, the sidewalk there, puts his hands on a railing, 
and does one of these stretches and everything else. And we look, we're looking dead in the eye on the binoculars and it's like, this has got to be the guy. This, this is definitely him. Right. So, you know, never have I ever done a surveillance though that was that quick. So he literally comes down the stairs, gets in a car and drives away. So we follow him. Now I'm a, just one vehicle. So we call in some reinforcement thinking this is definitely the guy. He looks just like the photographs. So we're following him about three or four FBI cars finally catch up. We follow him. He stops and pulls to the side of the road about 20 miles north of, uh, of San Francisco, walks into the woods and comes out with a bicycle. Now this guy's nicknamed the bicycle bandit, right? He rides bikes with bicycles. So, so there's a lot. The, 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 the probable cause is, is kind of building up here. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so he throws the he throws the bike in the trunk of a car, goes to pick up a friend. So now there's two in the car, and they're driving to downtown San Francisco. They drive around the block about three or four times. I <laughs> walk in the middle of the block, a bank. So I call my supervisor. I said, "This has got to be the guy. You know, he's got a, a bike in the trunk. He's got his partner there, and there's like six other agents now on this whole surveillance." So my supervisor says, "Stand by." He calls me two minutes later and says. Let him rob the bank. Now, that's unheard of. Because if somebody gets hurt or injured, right. that's on the FBI. Right, right. He says, let him rob the bank. I'm like, can I get that in writing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ends up, my supervisor comes out, and the guy still hasn't gotten to the bank yet, and we're watching him, and my supervisor shows up, and he's like, okay, Greg, when he goes to the bank, you and I will stand outside the bank. And when he comes out the bank, I'll ask him what time it is, and you grab him from behind. I'm like, Okay, great plan here. So we put people around. Sure enough, he walks into the bank. He comes out. My boss asks him what time it is. And, you know, he doesn't want to give the, my boss the time of day. I run up behind him. I bear hug him. I body slam him into the, into the pavement. Uh, he gets a little injured. I, you know, I handcuff him. I unzip his jacket. And literally bank bills are now flying in the wind across San Francisco on the sidewalk. It was like in the movies. I mean, literally... Twenty to hundred dollar bills are flying in the wind, and this is right in the middle of downtown San Francisco. <laughs> so we arrest him. We send another team to the car where his partner is. They arrest him. So that's the story of the bicycle band. <laughs> I was wondering how much money can he carry out of the bank if he's riding a bicycle? Like, well, you know what the average take is for a bank job? No, like thirty two hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because they usually rob just one drawer. Mm-hmm. And the drawers have between twenty five to thirty five hundred dollars in them. So the, oh yeah, the average... I've seen the movies. They yeah. pass in the note, and, and I mean yeah. that—that's like the FBI's bread and butter, right? Is like bank robberies. Like that's a good bust. Yeah, that, that's the history of the FBI. Kind of is from bank robberies back in the nineteen thirties. Absolutely. So a bicyclist with a unibrow sounds like <laughs> sounds like like the uh, love child of Frida Kahlo and Lance Armstrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> but wow, so like. Hey, San Francisco. Well, I mean, San Francisco is kind of rough now too. But, but San Francisco was pretty rough at that period of time, right? Like you had the tenderloin. The tenderloin was, uh, like. So, did you guys get involved with local law enforcement a lot, or were you mostly working? I don't want to say white collar because obviously a bank robber isn't white collar. But were you mostly working the the higher profile cases? Well, the FBI has, you know, multiple squads and the squads do different work. You have a white collar crime squad, you have a bank robbery squad, you have a gang squad, you have a drug squad, you have mortgage fraud squad. So, I, you know, I never worked a white collar crime and I always worked violent crime. Okay. So, uh, but working with the locals is the only way you get things done. I mean, How, they, it, they have the context in the street. They know the street smarts. They know the individuals. 
they know the good guys and the bad guys at sight. So you work very closely with the locals. Every FBI office does. So with the drugs and the gangs and things like that, what would elevate something from like a local issue to you guys? And were there were there jurisdictional fights over that stuff? <clears throat> Not really, because uh, the FBI got involved when the weight got heavier, when they wanted to you know sell or buy more drugs, uh, because we have the deep pockets, and that's okay. why the that's why the local agencies look to the FBI. We have the money behind us. We get the federal government behind us. To, to do the buys, do the buy walks, you know, and, and, you know, back in that time, uh, a kilo of cocaine was going for about $22,000. Well, you know, that's the entire yearly budget for buys for a small police department where we're letting $22,000, we'll give it to the drug dealer and let them take it away, let them walk. So they look to us when they know they got you know, a big fish and, they, and everybody tried to move, move, move up the food chain in the drug war. So when they get higher on the food chain, they bring the FBI and DEA and because of the deep pockets that we have. Makes sense. So now we're looking around a time frame like 1998 or so. Uh, when, was the, when did the hostage rescue team kind of come up on your radar and this was something you started to think about, like, I, I want to go and assess for this organization? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, really, when I was in Quantico, uh, the HRT compound is co-located on the grounds of the FBI Academy. And... You know, these HRT operators, you know, people, you know, even the agents that worked at the, at the FBI Academy, all the instructors, you know, they would almost talk about the operators in whispers and with, you know, with reverence and respect. And at nighttime, while you're trying to sleep, the HRT, uh, HRT helicopter would be flying around because they're doing nighttime ops, nighttime fast tripping training, you know, nighttime sniper shootings from an unstable platform. So then all this nighttime training is usually when they operate. So you hear him flying around, you see him walking around, you, you see him in the gym. And it's like, wow, who are those guys? And they're all buff and they all have a little bit of an attitude. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I saw them and, um, and uh, my, my physical fitness instructor, while, you know, every class at the FBI Academy had the physical fitness instructor assigned to them. Well, my instructor was Brett Mosier and he was a former HRT sniper. So he did a good job of identifying those in our class that he thought might have the, 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 the capabilities to make it through selection. So he pulled me aside and asked me if I might consider trying for HRT, you know, in the future, stuff like that. And I talked to him offline about it. And, uh, you know, it's just, you, you see these guys walking around, you hear them train, you hear stories about them, you see the reverence that they're given. It's like, you know, and for the FBI, it's the best of the best of the FBI. I'm like, right. I, I want to be a part of that. So it really just start there. Now, when I was in San Francisco, I was a member of the FBI San Francisco SWAT team. And uh, they were one of the seven, what they call enhanced SWAT teams at the time. And an enhanced SWAT team just means that they had uh, upwards of 40 people in the SWAT team and they got better equipment and better training than the rest of the SWAT teams in the country. Um, and that training came from the HRT. So we went to... Uh, Bridgewater, California at the Mountain Warfare Training Center of the Marine Corps and uh, did some mountain warfare training up there. And the HRT cadre came out and helped us train there. So I got to meet them firsthand, got to know them a little bit. And that's really what I said to myself. I really want to be a part of that organization. So walk us through a little bit of what that's like to apply to HRT. Like what are kind of the prerequisites and then going to selection, what that was like? Well, you have to be invited. So you put an application in and uh, then they do, uh, you know, their due diligence and talking to your supervisor, your SAC, looking at your arrest record, looking at, you know, your reports that you write, stuff like that. And they invite you to 
to selection. Um, I went through selection twice. I actually finished both selections. Uh, that's important to know because just because you finish selection doesn't mean you get picked up. And I finished the first selection in 1997, and I did not did not get picked up. Um, and that's a huge, you know, that's a, that's a kicking kicking the nuts. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's hard to swallow. You finished you finished the selection process, but they did not see something in you that they liked, and um, so they, I didn't get picked up. Did they give you feedback? Uh, you know, it's like what what they wanted to see the next time, or if you did it again. No, nope. they don't give you very little feedback. They tell you where you did, you know, well, but they don't tell you where you did bad. Uh, and you're only allowed to go to two selections. If you go, if you make it through two selections and don't get picked up, you can't try out again. So again, my first selection was 1997. Um, I didn't get picked up. I tried out again in 1999. Uh, I did get picked up, and and each each class uh, when I tried out, I had about fifty guys try out. Uh, my first selection, there were um, twelve guys left standing, and they chose six of the twelve, and I was not one of the six. In my second selection, I think we had about fifty guys try out. I think it was fourteen that uh, made through selection, and then they picked I think ten of us. Twelve. And, of us. and what is what does selection entail? I mean, we've talked on the show about. I mean, every other selection there is, I think, about RASP and SFAS and BUDS. We've been through it all. But what, what is HRT selection like? Well, uh, the good news is it's only two weeks long. So that's, that's the good news. Uh, but it is modeled after Hell Week from the Navy SEALs. I mean, it, it's, you know, they push you to your limits physically. There's very little sleep. Uh, a lot of mind games are played at you, you know, played against you. Uh, a lot of phobia testing. If you're, you know, if you're afraid of snakes, spiders, dark spaces, or heights, they're going to find out about it, and they're going to, you know, keep poking that until you, until you quit. Um, you know, just, um, you know, simple. I mean, again, you guys are both special force guys, so you know how, how it's played. But uh, you know, let's say there's 20 guys left on, you know, day 10. They'll throw out a case of MREs for lunch. Now there's only 12 MREs in the case, and there's 20 guys. You know, they look for the guy who goes there and grabs the bag, runs to the corner, starts cracking it open, and starts eating and not thinking about his teammates. Right. You know, so just small things like that, just to test what kind of teammate you'll be. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, very physically demanding. Um, you know, you are um, you know operating on very little sleep. They push you through a lot of shooting and arrest scenarios. Uh, so they'll send you into a room in Hogan's Alley where there's, you know, a bunch of HRT operators watching you, observing you, and they'll have a scenario where you have to arrest somebody. And uh, you know, and they just see how you react when things don't go mm-hmm. your way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some are, some are shooting situations, some are non-shooting situations, but it's a lot of scenario-based training when you're just tired and miserable, cold, wet, and hungry. That's a that's a really interesting like uh, job specific stressor to put you under. Whereas like in uh, you know the seals they obviously put you in the water. Mm-hmm. Special forces they make you wear a rucksack and land nav around the woods at night. Uh, FBI <laughs> they make you make arrests <laughs> while you're you're tired and cold and hungry. Yeah, I mean, and I can see how that's really challenging or testing the temperament of somebody and and how they respond in those very stressful situations. Yeah, and then uh, you know they, um, they, get, they get Halo and Halo qualified. Uh, half the, half the operators go through phase two of, of buds, and, uh, you know, down in Coronado and get certified in the director system. Um, you know, you have uh, specialties to include communications, uh, medical breaching. So you 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 know you you're you're an assaulter, you're a, you're a sniper, one or the other, 
And then you're also one of those three special needs, communications, medical, or breaching. Uh, which were yours? I was medical. So they sent me to paramedic school um, and then, you know, pig labs and goat labs and that sort of thing. Same thing you guys went through. Uh, and uh, I was an assaulter as well. Uh, how long is the uh, the training pipeline after selection? That's yeah, about six months long. Okay. Yeah, it's about six months before you, uh, it's called NOTS, N-O-T-S, New Operator Training School. And from the time that you make, uh, from the time you arrive in Quantico to go to NOTS, about six months later, you're assigned to a team. Now, you can fail NOTS. And we had three guys of my generation who failed and were recycled for the next NOTS class. So just because you go through NOTS doesn't mean you pass that either. Uh, is there anything in FBI, uh, in HRT training that you would identify as being sort of like different than being an operator in the military uh, as far as like specifically they train you guys on skill sets that they want you to have? Um, I guess judgment is really stressed. Um, you know, when you clear a room, a lot of times in the military, you clear with a frag grenade. Um, in law enforcement, you can't do that. <laughs> so you, have to be, you have to be very judicious in who you shoot and who you don't shoot. Um, so that was one of the biggest factors where they really want to see what your judgment is. Again, when you're you know, tired and hungry and, and not, not feeling your best. Uh, before we get on to the next thing, I just want to tell our uh, listeners out there a little bit about the sponsor for this show. It's Sap Gear. And uh, Sap Gear makes a number of products. And this one that we're showing off today is called the Poor Man's Tablet. And these are just little tablets that you can write on with a, uh, you know, a, a marker, um, different types of markers. I mean, you can write uh, underwater if you're a diver. Um, you can use a glow-in-the-dark pencil right on these if you want to pass these around the aircraft. And uh, for the super paranoid out there, uh, unlike an electronic device that has a tendency to leak data in various ways, uh, this won't leak data, and you can erase it off of here. It's a hard backing, and there's nothing left. Again, for the paranoid amongst you, um, amongst pe us, people people <laughs> who go through like CIA case officer training, you don't write on a pad of paper because it leaves an impression on the sheet under it. If you talk to some old school spies, they only write on three by five cards, and they make sure it's on like a marble countertop, so it's yeah. not a. Sap Gear has a lot of really fun stuff, right. and if if there's somebody in your life who just likes gadgets and things and cool stuff. Like check check out Sap Gear, they've got amazing amazing uh, products. So this is the poor man's tablet. Uh, it's sapgear.com. And uh, what's the uh, promo D? The promo code is Team, and you get fifteen percent off your first order. So Team, and get fifteen percent off your first order. It's sapgear.com, and use the promo code Team for fifteen percent off your order. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office, more than once actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So back to you, Greg. Um, and just FYI, so you know, I've lost video with you guys. So um, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Me. I'm sorry about that. We got we got you. We fine, have though. you. Um, so graduate from HRT training. Where, where's the first place you land on a team? 
Oh, uh, well, there's uh, three, at that time, there's three teams, a red, gold, and blue team. And I went to red team. And, um, you know, they divide the teams up for, with, with specific specialties. The, uh, the gold team was a maritime team. Uh, I was surprised, actually, I didn't get assigned to gold team because of the prior Coast Guard experience. But outside the red team, uh, the red section or red team specializes in, um, in buildings and hard points. The gold section specializes in maritime. Uh, and then the blue section um, specializes in tubular. So buses, trains, planes, and that sort of thing. So I landed on a red team, which are strongholds and buildings. So I went to elevator school. I did a lot of rappelling and climbing. I uh, went to several schools for that as well. Um, and, you know, really, really focused on the CQB skills for, for building assaults. I imagine the, the breaching skills must have been really important too. Yeah. I mean, the HRTs, you know, kind of like the tier one units uh, out there in the U.S. military, we always look for hospitals and schools and stadiums that are closing down and getting ready to be demolished. And the HRT is very, you know, they, they use our, the HRT uses their connections with all 56 field offices. So uh, when they know the school that's closing down and be demolished, they'll have the HRT come out and will practice it at that site before they demolish it. And a good example of that is um, here in Dallas, when Jerry Jones built his new stadium, Jerry's World, the old stadium here in Irving, um, before it was demolished, the HRT came out here. And I think uh, Dev Group and, and CAD came out as well to practice some, you know, high angle um, sniper shootings from the top of the stadium down to the field. So, you know, we look for places to train like that quite often. Yeah. Uh, ruts, right? Realistic urban training. Yep. So it's like Hollywood. You guys have your own location scouts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they, uh, yeah. So like for our listeners out there, when you see like, um, like, 160th Blackhawks flying around Manhattan and stuff like that. That's what it is. Realistic urban training that they do. Um, I've heard some pretty funny stories of like Delta officers getting called to the carpet by like some small town mayor. Like you made this big ruckus in town and like the people in the town start complaining, like noise complaints about breaches. So oh, some, yeah. So some like Lieutenant Colonel, like squadron commander has to show up in his class A is like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. You know, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, Yeah. A lot of conspiracy theorists. <laughs> that too. <laughs> that too. Black. Well, well, this is the 1990s, man. Black helicopters. Yeah, that was like, the thing. Oh, yeah. you, you guys were like the UN coming to take over, weren't you? Well, our Blackhawks are actually colored uh, navy blue, so that they don't look black. I mean, it was intentional to be navy blue, so that they didn't have that militaristic look to them. So, uh, one of your uh, first deployments, you got deployed to Yemen in 2000 for USS Cole. Um, you want to tell us about what that experience was like? Yeah, that, uh, that was the first time in a very long time that the HRT full force, the entire team was deployed overseas. Um, you know, we have historically in the past worked with those special mission units, you know, CAG and Dev Group on a smaller scale where the, you know, two or three or four operators assigned to them to go hunt down an individual, you know, in Somalia or wherever the case was or Yemen or, or you know, Kenya um, but this was the first full team deployment overseas for the HRT in a very, very long time. So the USS Cole gets bombed and um, they send uh, a big FBI team, bomb investigators, to go do the investigation. So we kind of had two missions uh, that we were uh, responsible for. First, we were doing force protection for the bomb investigators, the FBI bomb techs and the investigators that were sent there to to you know collect the evidence uh interview the witnesses and that sort of thing 
because it was an FBI investigation. So we will provide force protection from them uh, while they're in the hotel and then in transit from the hotel to the uh, the dock where they would get a small boat and take the small boat out to where the USS Cole was was anchored. Uh, so that was the first mission was force protection. Then we worked closely with the agency who was you know working out of the embassy there and helping to identify who was responsible using their contacts and their sources. And we actually did some operations where we did capture uh, some individuals in the country that were responsible when, for the planning and operation that, of that event. Now, when you say that you capture them, you mentioned earlier before the show that you guys always have to work with a partner force because you don't have jurisdiction outside the United States. That is true. Um, well, most cases uh, for the FBI to be in country, we need host government permission, uh, which is which is, goes through the agency uh, and the State Department. So we were there, uh, you know, with our weapons at the behest of the Yemenese government. Now, I can't tell you how much pressure the U.S. government put on the Yemenese government to make that happen. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, we were there in full force, and, and, you know, we had all our kit with us, and we were running around. I, got, I, mean, I have to be careful. We, we were doing operations uh, in Yemen. Sure. Yeah, right, at, at the behest of the government with their police. Um. <laughs> No comments. <laughs> at, 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 at the behest of their government with the blessing. The government knew we were yeah. there. Right. <laughs> some, some piece of paper was signed somewhere in a safe. Uh, um, well, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, because you, you had mentioned that before we started the show about um, how you guys come in and you're the law enforcement capability and maintaining that chain of custody. I mean, you're actually putting metal bracelets on bad guys and then escorting them back to the United States for you know criminal prosecution. That, and that's why the HRT exists. And we talked about this before the show. Uh, so I'll get into a little bit of the history of HRT yeah, and, how, and, and the genesis of that. Uh, the HRT was, you know, the idea of the HRT was actually born as a result of the 1972 Summer Olympic Games in Munich, Germany. If you remember way back in 1972, um, Palestinian terrorists took 11 Israeli athletes hostage. And, you know, at that time, the Olympics were like the only television show that was televised worldwide. Mm-hmm. So a worldwide audience saw these Palestinian terrorists take these Israeli athletes hostage. And then they were transported to the airport where the hostages were going to be released and the hostage takers were going to be let go. Well, the German government decided to do an assault to you know, free the hostages and kill or capture the terrorists. But during that operation, 100% of the hostages were killed. And I think seven of the nine hostage takers escaped. Again, that was 1972 Summer Olympic Games. President Nixon was in office at that time. The United States government, or the United States had already been offered the 1980 Lake Placid Winter Olympics, as well as the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympic Games. So President Nixon gathered his National Security Council and asked him this simple question. What is the United States response should an incident happen at our Olympics that happened like in Munich? And the National Security Council basically raised their hands and didn't have an answer. Uh, At that time, SEAL Team 6 wasn't even in existence. And what I thought at the time 
they did they did have Delta Force at the time, but it was so secretive that the government disavowed their, they, they even existed. Now, I heard from you, Jack, that you, you said you didn't think that Delta Force even came to existence in 1980. Yes, so I don't what, know. what's uh what from the military side, uh, you had a, a couple things happen. There was uh, the raid on Entebbe that the Israelis right. did. And uh, yeah, the National Security Council and the Pen- asked the Pentagon, like, do you have this capability? And they're like, well, we have personnel, but not really trained and equipped for this. And then uh, GSG-9 rescued those guys in Mogadishu. Uh, and again, they were asked, can you guys do this? And they're like, no, no, we can't. Um, and so Charlie Beckwith finally got his way. They start they started standing up Delta. Um, in the interim, they created uh, Blue Light, which was like 1977, 78, which was uh, they took a bunch of Vietnam vets who were in special forces uh, and created an interim counterterrorism unit um, to give Charlie Beckwith the two years he said he needed to train, assess, and uh, and and basically validate Delta for their mission. So blue light was pretty much gone by 78 or 79 and Delta, I believe got validated the night before the hostages were taken in Iran in 1980. Um, so that's the army side of, of how that came about. Well, that's gotta be very much a similar time frame when HRT was, was, was started because you know we got validated in 1983, just prior to the 84 Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles. So the HRT, they wanted to be operational for the late class of Winter Olympics in 1980, but they weren't certified yet. So, and I know that the first selection of HRT operators, they went down uh, to meet with Charlie Beckwith and they trained with the new Delta Force for, for I, I think, like 18 months. So Delta trained the first operators for HRT. And, and as a result of that, we still you know, maintain that really good relationship with CAG and Delta Force because of the genesis of the HRT. So long story short, uh, HRT was operational for the 1984 Summer Olympic Games and been operational ever since. And, um, you know, we, we, you know, of course we work domestically. Um, again, I mentioned earlier about the Posse Comitatus Act referring to the Coast Guard. Well, it's the same thing for Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 or CAG or DEB Group that those tier one units or special mission units, they can't operate domestically because of the Posse Comitatus Act which prevents the military from enforcing federal laws unless martial law is declared. So the United States arsenal needed that tier one capability, which had law enforcement authority. So, you know, when uh, we were looking for Osama bin Laden in the case of Tora Bora, there was always HRT on site as well in the event that we did locate uh, UBL in those caves there'd be an FBI agent, an HRT operator, who was there on site who could go to court when they brought him to trial in the Eastern District of New York where he was an indicted subject and say, yes, I was in the cave. I took took custody of the cell phones and the computers and all the documents and all the files. And I arrested him myself. And that, that information and all that, you know, all the, all the data and all the materials that, collect, that were collected have been in my custody ever since. Because you will never see a Delta Force or SEAL Team 6 operator in a court of law raising his right hand swearing <laughs> to the HRT operator can do that. Um, talk to us then about uh, 9-11 and what it was like at HRT that day and the subsequent week, weeks and months afterwards. 
Well, like anybody else in our field at that day, you know, um, when we saw that first plane hit, we knew our world had changed. Um, again, like anybody else that is in our field, we knew exactly where we were and what we were doing the minute that happened. Uh, we were gearing up. Um, we had this beautiful, you know, incredible shoot house at HRT. It's 45 rooms. It's two stories and has multiple staircases. It has an aircraft fuselage up in the rafters that comes down the floor for aircraft assault training. And uh, we're, we're getting prepped to uh, do our daily CQB. That starts at 0900 that morning. And um, just about that time, you know, the first plane hit right before nine o'clock. We're getting ready to, uh, you know, we're putting our flashbangs in our pouches and loading our magazines, getting ready to start a day of training. And we hear over the loudspeakers, all operators return to the classroom. And um, we got to the classroom, most of us still in full kit. And we saw the, the result of the first plane hitting the World Trade Center. And then we're in there watching live television when the second plane hit. And we all just kind of looked at each other and we knew that, you know, things were about to change. Um, about half the team was sent up to the Pentagon area to do counter surveillance after the plane hit the Pentagon. Uh, half the team went up there in plain clothes, you know, dressed way down to do some counter surveillance to see if anybody was kind of, you know, tracking what happened at the Pentagon. Uh, the other half of the team was pretty much sitting on the bags waiting for the call to, to go somewhere and do something. Um, uh, about, uh, let's see, um, about two months later, uh, we were in Afghanistan. Um, you know, with, you know, the special mission units, you know, looking for UBL who was already identified as the person behind it. So uh, after 9-11, HR team, you know, we always had that domestic capability still in the States where we kept a team, you know, available for a hostage situation in the United States. But for the most part, it was a, it was a rotation, uh, a, three, a three team rotation that would spend three to four months at a time over in Afghanistan. And then in 2003, when we invaded Iraq, you know, it doubled our, our, our presence overseas. So we would have a team in Iraq, we have a team in Afghanistan and a team in the United States. So obviously the, uh, the workload was quite intense. Um, you know, our families, God love them, um, stood behind us and supported us just like they did in the military. And, uh, you know, we were in Afghanistan and Iraq until the last people left. I, um, I'll, I'll return back to Afghanistan, Iraq. There, there was, I'm sorry to go a little bit out of order, but there was a, a, a prior incident before that I wanted to mention uh, and, and have you talk about, which was the DC sniper. Um, and that was a big act of terror before 9-11 that was, as, as you said, it, I mean, it shut down Washington, D.C. for like three weeks. I was wondering if you could tell us about that from your perspective. Yeah, the DC snipers, uh, John Lee Malvo and John Mohammed. Uh, or Lee Boyd, uh, sorry, Lee Boyd Malvo and John Muhammad. Uh, that was an interest. That was probably the most interesting three weeks of my life. Um, you know, these are two individuals. You know, a man and an and a 18-year-old boy um, in the 1996 Caprice Classic, carrying a Bushmaster AR-15 with a Tasco scope, I think it was. Uh, and the two of them literally shut down the D.C. metropolitan area. Now I'm talking Southern Maryland. Northern Virginia and all of Washington, DC. They shut that place down for three solid weeks. There wasn't, you know, imagine being a, uh, you know, I played football in high school, maybe you probably did too. Imagine being a football player in high school, your senior year, and you're not playing games and you're looking to get a scholarship or you're looking just to play the ball, you know, play ball. But Friday night football games are canceled. 
Um, you know, Starbucks came out later and said, you know, they, they, they had like an 80% decline in revenue during those three weeks. Uh, gas stations were putting those blue tarps, tarps up in front of, their, front of their gas pumps because the first couple of shootings occurred at gas stations. So when the DC snipers happened, um, we hooked up with the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department and that was where the first shooting occurred. And uh, we had a lot of intelligence coming in from multiple sources. You know, these guys were shooting in DC, they were shooting in Maryland, they're shooting in Northern Virginia. So it was a just cornucopia of law enforcement agencies involved. And we, in HRT, two of us were assigned basically to um, like a, another SWAT team and to be four of us in a vehicle. And we would just leave, leave driving around the, the entire metro area of DC, waiting for a shot to occur, hoping that we'd be nearby. So I remember one of the shootings occurred and I was on the American Legion Bridge. And if you're familiar with DC, it's a bridge that connects Maryland, Maryland to Northern Virginia. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a major thoroughfare. And this is like 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning, high to rush hour. And a shot rang out and we were told, shut down the American Legion Bridge. So there's four of us in one lane, in one side, and the, the east-west side, and, and another set of four on the other side of the highway. And we shut the place down. And, you know, we're, we're fully kitted up and we're searching every vehicle one at a time. We put cones out. So it went from a six-lane highway down to a one-lane highway. And we're, we're, pointing guns, you know, almost in people's faces, trying to identify who these shooters are looking for something. And nobody complained. They're telling us great job, catch these guys. I mean, it really was seeing America at its best. Um, and, uh, you know, ends up that, you know, they get a little cocky and they leave a, a note at the site of the middle school shooting where um, they said something to the effect that they didn't, that the, uh, Authorities didn't catch us in Alabama, and you're not going to catch us now. Now, at that point in time, the FBI had no idea Alabama was even in play. Um, again, this is about halfway through. I think he, they shot 13 people, if I remember correctly. And this is at least two-thirds or halfway through those shootings, and the FBI had zero to go on. We had no idea who these people were. We didn't have any kind of connection to anyone or any organization. We were chasing around white panel trucks because when shocks rang out, people would look around and what did they see? Well, they see what they always see, white panel trucks. Right. So we're looking for a white panel truck because all the shootings, somebody reported a white panel truck. Well, it ends up at, at the time of arrest, they're driving a 1996 Navy blue, you know, Caprice classic, you know, the farthest thing, farthest thing from a white panel truck you can possibly get. So again, long story short, they leave a note, in Alabama, uh, uh, referencing Alabama, now the FBI has something to sniff. You know, this is where the FBI does does its best work. You know, we, we get a scent and we don't stop until we find out where that scent takes us. So the FBI looked at all the unsolved shootings in Alabama and came up with a, a shooting at a gas station in Alabama from several years earlier where some evidence was left behind. They re-ran that evidence through the system and up pops John Mohammed. I think it had to do with his DNA when he was in the military. So they re-ran the DNA that was left at that crime scene. John Mohammed names pop up. They realize he lives in Seattle. So they go to Seattle where they had the most recent address for him. At his Seattle address, there was a big oak tree that was chopped down in the backyard that had a bunch of bullet holes in it that he was using for target practice. The FBI dug out some 
two, two, three rounds from that oak tree. And sure as nothing, those rounds matched ballistically with some of the rounds that were captured from the killings and the shootings in Northern Virginia and Maryland. So now we had a guy, we had a name, we had John Mohammed. So now that we know the name, now it's only a question of time before we catch him. And, uh, you know, we had a, a, somebody call in, uh, you know, we find out he had a Blue Caprice Classic, now we're looking for that vehicle. Uh, a couple, about a week goes by, we get a tip that there's a Blue Caprice Classic at a, at a rest stop uh, just outside of Baltimore on the highway. HRT is deployed. Uh, we go to the rest stop, and sure enough, we find him and Lee Boy Malvo asleep in the vehicle. We bust the windows and, and arrest both of them without incident. It's amazing. And, you know, I, I don't know how many people like are old enough to remember that. Uh, but it was, it was a, it was a horrifying time for people. Like you said, it was the first couple of people were yeah. people in gas stations, just filling up their tanks or whatever and getting shot from nowhere. And no, they trace. shot five people and they won. They won. They shot five people. Yeah. Greg. Uh, I mean, the important thing is you guys busted them. Uh, what was the motive? I don't recall reading anything about it. I mean, did it ever come about why they were doing this? This is the most crazy motive you'll ever hear. John Mohammed was going through a divorce and won in custody of his kid. His plan was to include his ex-wife in these random shootings in D.C., so that it would never come back to him. If he just shot his ex-wife, of course, who's going to be the first suspect? Right. The ex so his plan was to kill multiple people, and one of those people would be his ex-wife so that he could get custody of his kids. That's about the most batshit crazy motive I've heard, yeah. Yep. That's pretty high up there. That uh, It reminds me of a story I just heard, though, about the whole uh, – like the whole aspirin poisoning thing that happened a long time ago where I think a woman was trying to murder her husband. So she, she was going to poison him, but she dropped off a bunch of poison and like aspirin bottles in a grocery store or whatever. So that when she poisoned she could him, clip him, but got a other people would do people. it too. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, <laughs> it's smart. It, it's smart. Uh, but like you said, like his hubris his his, his ego got in the way. He wanted to taunt everybody and blew his own game. Yep. Absolutely. They're, they're still they're still in prison, aren't they? Uh one was put to death and one's in prison, yes. All right. The, the, uh, the young, young person, Lee Boyd Malvo, is still alive. Uh and they actually recently were thinking about releasing him and that got shot down. But uh John Mohammed was put to death. Mm-hmm. Um so back to uh I, I guess um you know, you see the USS Cole, you see the DC sniper thing, and then you were there when 9-11 happened in the unit. Um, you were seeing terrorism sort of like escalating. I mean, what, do you think that's accurate from your point of view that you're seeing this this issue get larger and larger um, for America? Uh, and then eventually you find yourself in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, what, was it surprising when the dam broke? Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I mean, 9-11 caught everybody was surprised. Yeah. So... Uh... You know, um, yeah, of course, that changed the world. And, you know, the whole NCTC was now, you know, 9-11 brought a lot of things to light. 
And one of the, 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 the key elements that came to light was the fact that the FBI and the CIA weren't talking to one another. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because we didn't want to, it's because we couldn't. You know, there was actually laws in place, you know, we called it the Chinese wall at the time, um, where national security information cannot be used with criminal information. And it's still true today, you know, the difference between a Title III wiretap for a criminal investigation versus a FISA wiretap for an intelligence, intelligence investigation. You can't use the information gleaned from a FISA wiretap in a criminal investigation. You have to somehow marry the two up. So, you know, back before 9-11 happened, the national security side of the FBI, those chasing the spies and the terrorists, could not talk to the criminal arm of the FBI. Now, we know now that terrorists raise money, raise funds by doing criminal acts. So they have to talk to one another. But before 9-11, it wasn't allowed in the FBI. We couldn't talk to the, you know, an FBI criminal investigator could not talk to the CIA or an FBI counterintelligence uh, agent about anything because those those streams could not cross. And right. as a result of 9-11 and the failures there, uh, you know, we had the National Counterterrorism Center that was established, you know, in, in McLean, Virginia. It's, li- it's literally three miles down the road from CIA headquarters. And at the NCTC, again, National Counterterrorism Center in McLean, that's where all 80 of the intelligence community agencies came together, you know, NYPD, Coast Guard, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, you know, uh, ATF, Customs, Border Patrol, CIA, DEA, and the whole game, you know, every agency out there is now under one roof sharing information and working together. So, you know, I think that was the reason why we you know, have come so far in the global war on terrorism that we finally started working together. Uh, before you left HRT, were you one of those guys that got sent over to Afghanistan and Iraq? I, I did uh, two tours in Iraq, yes. Uh, and uh, what was that like for you going over there as a as a cop, but you're in a war zone? <laughs> well, again, uh, yes, I was a cop, um, but I was an HRT cop, so um you know, we, we got a lot of enhanced training. You know, again, we, we did train side by side with the special mission units. Um, so we felt very comfortable in that arena. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it, fortunately for us too, we only did four month deployments. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're on the same rotation as the SM special mission units yeah, were. Yeah. So we didn't have to do the 12, 14, 18 month deployments. That, that most of the Marines and, and, and the Army guys are doing out there. So we do three or four months in country and, and come back home. So that was a huge benefit. Um, but, we, you know, we chose our targets. We were surrounded by, you know, a, a bunch of very highly trained, you know, special mission unit individuals. You know, I had my six or eight guys with me who, who, I, who I trust with my life who were highly trained. And then we usually had a bunch of Army Rangers uh, setting the inner perimeter force as well when we hit these houses in, in, in Baghdad. So um, it, I, I don't want to say it was fun, but it was. You can say it was it, fun if it was fun. We be, Most it, of the people on the show you, get it. You, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Most of the people on the show get it. I mean, you're putting your skills that you train so hard for to use. Yeah. And um, every night, you know, yeah. that, you, you train so hard and, and you just run scenarios and scenarios and, and practice. And so it, it's good to see, you know, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. And, you know, it's, it's it, again, I don't want to use the word fun, but it is enjoyable to put those skill sets to use and, 
you know, having yourself realize, you know, I am well-trained, this stuff does work, and I'm surrounded by some of the greatest warriors in world history. And, and I can't say enough. I mean, the guys I served with, those guys I served along, alongside with, I mean, God love every one of them. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate. We didn't lose anybody over there. We have lost some operators in training, but we didn't lose anybody over there. A couple were injured. Um, we had, you know, one, uh, actually we had two HRT operators who left the team and went to ground branch and they were severely injured. One lost his leg, one lost his vocal cords in, in uh, operations. But, um, you know, the, the guys, and you guys know this, the guys you serve next to, the guys to your left and the guy to your right, I mean, you love them like brothers. And I just can't say enough great things about them. And I know that they had my back as much as I had theirs. And you walk into these, these operations with a sense of confidence yeah, yeah. that, um, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's not bravado. It's not conceit. It's just confidence that, you know, what you're trained to do, you know, the guy to your left and your right is equally as well-trained and you walk in these operations saying, we got this, mm -hmm. we are better than these people and we will win this fight. Out of curiosity, how would people respond initially like when, when they would, when you would be introduced to them, when you were like the FBI guy, like when they clam up, like, oh shit, I don't want to say anything that's going to get me arrested. And then were there awkward moments, like once they did get to know you and they were talking about stuff, they're like, oh shit, what am I saying? Well, for the most part, most people had no idea who the hell we were. <laughs> you know, you know the, the HRT contingent, there was like 10 or 12 strong. It wasn't a big footprint. Yeah. So it was a very small footprint. So, you know, we had a, uh, you know, we would go to, you know, meals over at Biap, not Biap, over at, well, we did Biap as well, but over at the palace, we have, you know, lunches and dinners there and we're walking in and we have, you know, we're in our, you know, our BDUs, but no insignias, no ranks, no nothing. We're totally just, you know, bare. And we have these high tech weapons with, you know, all the, you know, all the, you know, one thing about HRT, their budget was, was really good. And we always had the best equipment that was out there. Whether it was you know the lasers, the iron lasers, the the, the you know the H and K four sixteens. I mean, we always had the best gear. So we walk in with this gear that most people you know would just you know drool over, and they're like, and we have no seniors, no ranks. So most people had no idea who the hell we were. Um, but working with the special mission units, you know, we usually did a workups with them as well. So we had already spent two or three months training with them doing workup so they know exactly who we were and what our skill sets were so they they, they really didn't have an issue with us yeah it was the regular army guys and the, and the mps and everybody at both biop and at the palace who just had no clue who we were yeah one uh I, I have a quick story about the cultural difference between uh the rangers and uh and the fbi we uh so we yeah we were working with i think there were fbi swat guys in afghanistan we had a couple hrt guys with us in Mosul. Um, but in, in Afghanistan, I remember we were doing like a class on like EPW searches, right? How you, uh, if you kill the enemy in combat and you come up to them and you search the body and there's a, a, a methodical way you search the, the body for, you know, intelligence and stuff like that. And one of the guys is like, okay, so you come up to the body, the barrel of your rifle is really hot. Cause you've just been in a firefight. As you come up to the body, you just shove that barrel down in his eyeball. And if he flinches, you pull the trigger and which is. Technically, as far as I, I'm not a jag, but I think it's legal uh, to check the body to make sure that they're actually dead. But you could have seen, you could see the, you should have seen the look on the FBI guy's face when he heard this. He's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> 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 now, 
that, that is something you would not repeat in a court of law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've met like a couple of, of FBI agents overseas and I always want to say, I take the fifth. Like, I don't know. I don't know why you're here, but I take the fifth. <laughs> but no, it's, I didn't yeah. Do it. I didn't do it. Uh, yeah. I don't know why you're here, but whatever it was. Uh, yeah. If any, any of those uh, ops that you did with those special operations task force in Baghdad, like really like kind of stand out in your mind is like, that, that was pretty eventful or like, that's the way you get it done. Yeah, there are a few, but you know, I can't, it's their operations. I can't talk about their sure. operations. But, uh, you know, there were a few that were just, you, you sit back, you look at it. It's like, wow. I mean, that just, that was impressive to watch, impressive to see the teamwork, the execution. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, I, I can't say enough good things about, those guys, they are, they're, they're the best of the best. And, you know, I'm still friends with a couple of guys that are former tag guys, you know, and, you know, a shout out to Chris Dutch Moyer, who's a friend of mine, who was one of the dog hangers on, on tag. He'd be a great guest on your show, by the way. And okay. he's on a new show. He's on a new show on dog handlers, a uh, new documentary on, on war dogs, but uh, Chris Dutch Moyer would be a great guy for you to have on cool. your show. Okay. Just stop to the earth guy. And, you know, I think he did 14 deployments overseas. Um, you know, numerous bronze stars. I think he's like a silver star as well. Just a great guy with amazing, you know, pedigree. Um, but, you know, just, I, I, they're the best America has to offer, hands down. They're, they are the best America has to offer. And, and uh, to, to call them friends, I'm humbled. And, and then the, the HRT role, you guys were doing like the evidence collection, like SSE before we had SSE. That was that kind of their part of it. Exactly. That's kind of the reason why we were there was for, again, the evidence and the chain of custody in case anything had to come to trial in the United States. And our, our one of our initial missions overseas was training these special mission units on how to do SSEs, you know, sensitive site exploitations. So, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you guys never worried about evidence before. Now, all of a sudden, you got to worry about evidence, right. how, you, how you bag it and tag it so that when it gets back to the intelligence analysts, they know what they're looking at. So, uh um, that one of our first missions was to teach those guys how to do that. And that was one of the big problems with Gitmo, too, is is it was supposed to be military tribunals. These people were rolled up in a military action, and then all of a sudden it became a law enforcement thing, but there was no chain of custody. There was no evidence. There was, like, there, there were none of the procedures in place that needed to happen when somebody goes to, when somebody is prosecuted in the United States. So it sort of created this big quandary. And so and it, I, it even became an issue in Iraq with when we got the Iraqi courts going. Right. And if you don't have any evidence, I mean, even if the court's doing their job. Then... Right. Right. Yeah. Like, okay, we, we tracked this cell phone to this person, but what other evidence do we have? You know? Yeah. So it, it's very interesting because the addition of the FBI and that law enforcement element was really critical in some places uh, because it allowed the military to do things outside of just killing somebody. And, and you know, you're not killing people unless they're shooting at you. You're not just randomly going in and, and shooting up targets. So if you are detaining people, then what? In, in, the, right. in the beginning, it was like just shoving all the evidence in like a black trash bag and bringing it back. And now you don't know whose cell phone is who. There's, yeah. Yeah. Well, in your conventional war, you know, he who kills the most wins. Right. But on the war on terror, you, you needed to learn 
who the leadership was, who was given the orders, where they are. So there was a, a huge intelligence component that the military really wasn't accustomed to. Um, you know, you know, military intelligence in the past in a conventional war was, where's the enemy at? Let's go kill them. You know, and the GWAT, global war on terror, is like, we didn't know who the leadership, we knew who they were, but we didn't know where they were, right. where all the lieutenants were and all the, you know, mid-level and senior level managers were. So just killing people, you would never get to that level. So you needed to be judicious in who you killed. And right. then when you did capture them, getting that intelligence, you know, the cell phones, the files, the computers, the laptops, getting all that information to give to the intel people so they can, like a cartel investigation, move up that chain yeah, yeah. to get the next, you know, next person in charge. Right. And the other difference, I think, uh, is like in, in standard wars in the past, we've had POW camps. We've had prisoner of war camps. You right. know, you were you were a uniformed yep. soldier Under that we were fighting against. And there's you a surrendered or captured right. And, you know, we put you in a POW camp and that lasts until the war ended. But there wasn't that type. You, there weren't uniformed soldiers in the Taliban or in Al-Qaeda. They're, you know, right. you're rolling up people who sometimes you know exactly who they are and sometimes you don't. And it, took, it takes somebody with you know, that as that sensitive side exploitation, the gathering of evidence, that type of expertise, which soldiers were not trained for, um, you know, to, to facilitate that. Well, a great example of that too is uh, when Saddam Hussein was captured, the individual who spent nine months with him, interviewing him and talking with him was a good friend of mine by the name of George Pirro. And George Pirro was an FBI agent. Everybody thought he was CIA. George spent nine months. He was the guy who sat and smoked cigar and drank whiskey with Saddam Hussein for nine months. And, you know, he, he came to HRT and talked to us after Saddam was, was um, executed and told us a few things that I think you and your audience will find, find interesting. Um, what was the mass destruction? The whole issue. Saddam Hussein knew that the U.S. government, British government, Australian government, the, the big five were listening in on their conversations, on the Iraqi general's conversation. They, Saddam Hussein knew that his communication network was compromised and that the Americans were listening in. Saddam was afraid that Iran was going to attack him again. So Saddam told his generals to intentionally speak about weapons of mass destruction, as a knowing that we would overhear it that word would get out and that word would prevent the Iranians from attacking again because Iran, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. So the whole weapons of mass destruction thing, you know, everybody gives, you know, George Bush a hard time about it. Well, it was an intentional misinformation campaign by Saddam Hussein because he was still fearful of being attacked by Iran. That's fast. We have never, I've never heard that yeah. before. And, and one of the things that came out of that too is like Saddam really did, he thought we were bluffing too, that we weren't going to invade, right? Yep, exactly. And this came from George Pirro himself. And George, like I said, George spent nine months with Saddam before he was executed. Well, and the other thing that, the other thing that George said I found very interesting is that, is this. He said, uh, Saddam said this pretty much verbatim you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. I know my two sons are sociopaths. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh my God! Uh, so all the all the stories about them, you know, picking women up off the streets and, and yeah. putting them in, you know, human trafficking, slavery—they're uh, all true. And Saddam knew about it. 
but didn't do anything about it because he knew his sons were sociopaths. Yeah, when when we interviewed Sam Faddis, he told us a pretty horrific story about Uday and Kusei. And, um, you know, a- actually the whole Uday and Kusei kind of story arc, the only part we haven't interviewed somebody about is like some of the operators who went in and smoked them up. They yeah. Smoked up the two. And also the younger son, Ibrahim, uh, was killed also. Uh uh, another time, another time. Yeah, no. It, <laughs> it, you, if you want to see a great sixty minutes interview, go to sixty minutes and look up George Piro, P I P I R R O, and he'd be a great guest for your show. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. He spent he spent nine months with Saddam. He was the guy, and, uh, and he's again one of the most articulate, well spoken, intelligent men I've known. And to hear the stories of him sitting with Saddam. In fact, uh, he grew a mustache like Saddam. Just to ingratiate himself. Yeah, that's Saddam thought if you if you grow a good mustache, it was a it was a sign of your man. Yeah, yeah, it's a sign of masculinity in Iraq, and they take the so so David, you're in. Yeah, I got it, man. They they take the um what what is it the eyelash stuff and put it through their through their beard their mustache to make it darker like Saddam. It's it's so fascinating too because now like. Why would Saddam think that we would come after him? Because we had funded him against the Iranians. We had, we had we had been on his side, but we've also had people on the show that have said that even before Bush, like during Clinton, like there were people in the government that were always angling for war against oh, Iraq. Yeah, yeah. Like that has been the angle for some of the, you know, administrative like constants uh, for a long time. So, well, yeah, the the Iran, you know, the Iran hostage situation. I mean, Iran's Iran has been on our enemy list ever since that. Yeah, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, yeah, we've always looked for ways to get into Iran because of the whole four hundred forty four days of hostages. So, um, you kind of like had like the run at HRT, kind of got to do a little bit of it all. What was it like leaving HRT and then going over to the National Counterterrorism Center? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, was, that was a hard choice. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, I think I should have done two more years in HRT. I did six years total. I think I had two more years into me. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a young man's game. I mean, doing those kind of deployments, carrying that kind of weight, um, all that training. Um, again, I was I was married at the time. So, you know, marriages, uh, you know, have there's definitely a strain on marriages. Just being away, knowing, you know, knowing that you're at the tip of the spear. Um, knowing, you know, every time you go away that, you know, my wife knew that my life was, was endangered. I I wasn't sitting in the back, you know, reading intelligence reports. I was going out there, you know, getting into fights as much as I could. So, um, so leaving the HRT was was a very, very difficult decision. Um, but again, just by the greatest six years of my life, I I mean, again, the, the guys on that team are just they're, they're the best individuals on the face of the earth. But going to National Counterterrorism Center was really eye-opening because I went from seeing the war on terror at ground level to now seeing the war on terror at the 35,000-foot level. Mm-hmm. So here I am at the National Counterterrorism Center getting all, of the, all these reports from Australia, from the Philippines, you know, from Kuwait, from Saudi Arabia. And they all tie into one person or one thing or one event that's happening, you know, here in the States or whatever the case is. So it, it, it's the, the, the realization that how global this terrorism thing was, where you have 
Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, you know, in the Philippines, and now he's arrested in Pakistan and all these other, you know, connective points from Southeast Asia to Africa, to the Middle East, to the United States, to Europe, uh, just to see that from, from that level and to see the, how they're able to connect those dots. I mean, people far smarter than I, what I am or I was doing this and able to connect the dots and to stop a terrorist event from a piece of information they got from, you know, the Philippines that connected a dot down here in Kenya to a dot over here in Kuwait to now a terrorist event against our troops in Iraq and, and to tie that all together. So that, that was amazing to watch. And I learned so much in those two years. What were, what were some of the uh, more significant like international terrorism cases you worked on during that time? Um, one of the big ones I worked was the, uh, the Bali bombing uh, in Indonesia, mm-hmm. killed 202 people, I think 80 some odd Australians. Um, uh, I was, I was provide or I was given the uh, position of focusing on Southeast Asia terrorism. So that 2002 Bali bombing um, was one of my biggest cases. I worked very closely with the Australian federal police and the Australian uh, uh, ASIO, which is a train service of intelligence, something like that. But um, working very close with the Australians because they had so many citizens killed there. I think only four Americans were killed, but it was a huge explosion at that nightclub in Bali, Indonesia. So we we worked that quite hard to try to find those responsible for that bombing. And what came about out of all of that from that investigation? Uh, they made several arrests. Uh, the Australians made several arrests. Uh, uh, the Indonesian government made several arrests and put some people to death as a result of that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, again, just to see the cooperation, you know, when, when events like this happen, it's great to see the cooperation internationally and interagency wise to see how everybody comes together to, to get to the bottom of these incidents and, and put those responsible behind jail, or, you know, put them to death. So with that, that uh, was- I'm sorry, with that 30,000 foot view, did you feel as though there are a lot more terrorist attempts that were that were like stopped yeah. or that they're just kind of random sporadic and that, and that the intelligence community is doing a stop the best it can. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm confident we stopped many attacks. Um, you know, most you can't talk about, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the NCTC, it worked. Uh, it, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And that's getting everybody on the same page, sharing information, again, not only interagency in America, but globally. Um, so, you know, I, I, we, I am confident we thwarted multiple attacks uh, across the world, uh, particularly, again, I, I focus on Southeast Asia. So I know we stopped attacks in the Philippines, which was at the time bubbling up as well. Southern Philippines has always been a, a huge hotspot for terrorism. Uh, Indonesia at the time was a very hot, hot spot. There was a uh, couple of attacks in Eastern Thailand that happened that we also assisted in the arrest of those individuals and stopped several more. So, um, you know, seeing, seeing how it works at that level was very gratifying. And after two years there, you uh, landed at the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Dallas. Yeah, I came to Dallas, Texas. Uh, JTTF supervisor in 2007 is when I got to Dallas, Texas. Um, 
you know, at that time, uh, you know, we had several terrorism cases that were, you know, not that large, but Dallas was a huge uh, point in the 9-11 investigation because the American Airlines headquarters is here and the planes, about three out of four planes were American Airlines planes. So, uh, and we also found out that some of the people that were responsible for 9-11 came through Dallas as well. So the terrorism, JTTF here was pretty busy. Um, we had a couple of incidences. Um, one came to light that got a lot of media attention where we had an individual who wanted to blow up um, a tower in downtown Dallas. We had our agents here on the task force the bomb techs uh, worked with this bad guy who didn't know he was working with the FBI, of course, and they made a truck bomb, wired it all up with 55-gallon drums of explosives, and he parked it under this fountain. It's called Fountain Tower. He parked under Fountain Tower in downtown Dallas and went to a parking garage roof about two blocks away where he met with other FBI agents undercover. He was given a cell phone, and he was told to punch in this code in the cell phone and the bomb would ignite. Well, that cell phone number went to an FBI agent SWAT team that was in the stairwell. And when he hit that number, the SWAT agents came out of the stairwell and arrested the individual. So I, I know, again, that that is definitely a an, uh, an incident where we stopped terrorists from doing bad things because uh, we were able to inject some uh, undercover agents involved and, and, you know, get him to show his hand and then arrest right. him. I remember reading about this when it happened, now that you mention it. Yeah. So, uh, and then in 2010, 2011, uh, we had the NBA All-Star Game. We had the Mavericks in the NBA World Championships. We had the 2011 Super Bowl. We always had, you know, two PGA events here. We have uh, Texas Motor Speedway, which is a big NASCAR speedway. We have those events a couple times a year. We have the Armed Forces Bowl. We have, uh, you know, just a lot of large events here in Dallas that are, you know, a target for terrorism. So as a JTTF supervisor in charge of special events, I was in charge of look, with working closer with the locals and ensuring that these big events, the Super Bowl being the biggest, were, you know, that security was planned and executed and we, we prevented any kind of terrorist attack on those events. There, there's an acronym for these events that, that gets used uh, within the JTTF. Is it, it's like HSSI or something like that? I, I... Uh, yeah, um, um and that's a national special event. Yes. Security NSSC national special national security special event. And it's, it's not like level one, two, three, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. NSSC. And then, and the level one is uh, Olympics and inaugurations. And then level two is a Super Bowl. And then level three is like the world series. Level four is like PGA events, stuff like that. And I, I mean, I know you can't get like into specifics about what you do to defend and prepare to defend that kind of event. But I mean, what was I, I mean, I can only imagine for you guys, it's a nightmare to try to manage that and keep everyone safe. Yeah. I was identified as the lead agent for safety and security for the Super Bowl in 2011. I was identified in 2008 by my SAC. Oh, I was now the good news about that is I was able to go to the Super Bowl in 2008. 2009 and 2010. So that's a good thing. So <laughs> one of those Super Bowls, you know, prior to my Super Bowl was fantastic. So I went to those three Super Bowls prior to the one here in Dallas to observe the security they had there. So you learn a lot by what other people do, of course, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. But yeah, I mean, just the number of agencies involved, it was over 100 agencies here in Dallas. 
you know, of course you, you, you shut down the airspace over the stadium. Um, you know, you just have, you know, concentric rings of security, you know, outer, middle and inner security. You have, you know, snipers up in the rafters of the stadiums. You have snipers overlooking the highways. You have, you know, just, just the transit of the players from the hotel to the stadium for practices and for the game, you know, is, is a huge movement in and of itself. So yeah, the amount of work involved and the amount of manpower involved, um, you, and there's no lie, I literally started working on the security of the 2011 Super Bowl the Monday after the 2010 Super Bowl. So all my JTF, all my JTTF responsibilities came to a halt on the day after the 2010 Super Bowl. At that point in time, on that Monday, my entire focus for the entire year was nothing but Super Bowl. Wow. And like what, what does that include? Like how, how do you even plan for that? What are some of the considerations you have to take? Everything from severe weather to uh, WMDs to air dispersants to sniper attacks to VBIADs to food poisoning the players. I mean, you know, the red cell, this is, is, you know, it's everything imaginable. I mean, you have to take in consideration every threat and try to mitigate those threats. I mean, that's what you get paid for. Is, you know, identify identify the risks and then mitigate them. So you know there is a uh, um, an office in the FBI called the Special Event Office, and so they work closely with the NBA and NFL and everything else. And and these people go to all those special events and assist the division. So you know I had a big hand, uh, a big helping hand from headquarters from the, from the National Special Event Office. You know who do all these year after year after year, they come to me and tell me pretty much how to do this. So, you know, I have to give them a lot of credit. You know, the FBI has, you know, again, an office that specifically is designed to look at all the threats, you know, from the, uh, that may occur for these special events. And then you have intel analysts that do nothing but scrub the, you know, the social media and scrub all the dark spaces out there looking for threats and everything else and trying to identify what may happen and looking at chatter so uh, there's nothing, nothing overlooked. I mean, every federal agency, every state agency is involved in the Super Bowl, um, and there's not a uh, there's not a stone that's left unturned. <laughs> it's wild, man. I, yeah, I can't even imagine the scope of that. And a- after that high stress event, uh, you went to be the legal attaché in Budapest. Yes, that uh, I tell you what. Again, some of the best years of the bureau. Uh, you know. I went to high school in Paris, France. I've traveled all over the world, and I will tell you what, Budapest, Hungary is one of the most amazing cities you'll ever visit. Highly recommend it. If you go to if you go to Europe, bypass London, bypass Paris, bypass Rome, just go to Budapest. It's amazing. The people are amazing. The history is amazing. The city is beautiful. It's clean. It's safe. Um, and you know, I I went there, and and the timing was was really unique because they had just started their counterterrorism team, cool, called the Tech T E K. And they just started it. They just had their own um, building dedicated to them. They identified who the individuals were. So I get there and, you know, for, for, for 18 years, 17 years, I went all through my career in the FBI and never get my picture in the paper, you know, being the, being the gray man, being the ghost, you know, having, you know, having my home, not even listening to my name, only my wife's name. So, you know, trying to be an invisible person. So I get to Budapest hungry, and like day two, 
I'm on, Buda, I'm on Hungarian national television, all three stations. This is Greg Schaefer, the new legal attache in Budapest, Hungary, former member of the FBI's HRT, blah, blah. So to get my entire history on national television, and for me, that was a huge paradigm shift and something that <laughs> was really difficult to, to grasp. But um, bottom line, uh, the, the, the Hungarian National Police and, and their counterterrorism people are just great guys. I actually was able to bring three of their uh, senior operators back to HRT, and they uh, observed our selection process, and they took back and mimicked our selection process for their selection for their individuals. And I was able to help them out designing a, a selection process and designing CQB rooms for them because they, they were just really at the forefront of designing this new counterterrorism team. And with my experience in HRT, they took advantage of that. And I worked very closely with them. It was just a lot of fun. Okay, so what the hell is this title, legal attache? Sounds like you were a tactical attache to the Hungarian <laughs> counterterrorism unit. <laughs> Now it's uh, you know you, you basically are you know, every legal attaché and most embassies in the, in the in the world U.S. embassies in the world have them now. Um, you work closely with the national police of that country, and, and you assist them in any investigation they have that has connectivity to the United States. Gotcha. And if it's any organized crime, mm-hmm. chances are the money from the organized crime is going to go through a U.S. bank at some point. If it goes through a U.S. bank, we have jurisdiction, so the FBI can help. So that's how the FBI gets involved in overseas investigations is that we find that connection to a U.S. entity, whether it's a bank or a, or, a, or, a, or a cell phone carrier or anything like that. If anything associated with America, the FBI can now use its resources to assist the foreign nation in their investigation. And, and so then you finished out your uh, career with FBI going back to Dallas. You, you told me you wanted to go back to being a bit of a knuckle dragger and a door kicker. Yeah, I, I went down two ranks from GS-15 under GS-13. Wow. Uh, the, the ASAC, the Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the of Dallas Field Office, was a friend of mine. And I told him I wanted to come back to Dallas. He said, what do you want to do? Uh, and I'm like, you know what? Here's what I want to do. I want to be on a uh, you know violent crime task force. I want to step down. I don't want to be a supervisor. I want to be, like you said, a knuckle dragger. I want to be on the streets. I want to arrest people. And uh, of course, again, again, with my tactical experience in HRT, he was more than happy to put me on a squad. And uh, we had a lot of last 12 months of my career. Uh, I, I put a lot of people in prison and kicking a lot of doors and a lot of fun. So uh, before we get to um, sort of your post-service career and uh, are there any user questions? Yeah, there are a um, few. We'll, we'll get to those. Uh, sort of the... Um, other topic I wanted to bring up with while, while we have you here is um, in recent years, especially, there's been a lot of talk about the politicization of the FBI. And I know it kind of like breaks the hearts of, uh, of yourself and, and a lot of other FBI agents that I've spoken to over the years because they have told me they spend so much time trying to be nonpartisan and unbiased and, and stay out of the politics. And so we're just cops. We're just enforcing the law, right? And I wanted to ask you what you thought about this, whether first off, whether it's right or not that the FBI has been politicized, if you think that's accurate. And second, you know, how you respond to seeing kind of your bureau being dragged through the mud in the press at times. I tell you, Jack and David, it, 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 and I mean this with my, my whole heart, it, it crushes my soul to see what's happening in the FBI. Um, it just crushes the soul. I, mean, I, I, I don't have the words to describe how much it truly hurts me. Um, the good news is I, I 
feel in my heart of hearts that a majority of the field agents out there running cases and investigations are true American patriots and don't give a lick about what political party you're affiliated with. They have one goal in mind, and that is to do an investigation and put guilty people in prison, put bad people away. That's their job. That's why they join the FBI. Uh, that's why 90% of the FBI agents do 20 years and make a career of it. They don't leave because it's in their blood. It's in their DNA. It's, what, it's who they are. And a vast majority of those agents are good, solid American patriots. Again, not caring what political party they're affiliated with. That being said, yes, there is corruption on the seventh floor of headquarters, and it's rampant. And one of the problems with the FBI is the SA, the the director of the FBI chooses the SAC, which stands for Special Agent in Charge. The, the director of the FBI hand selects all fifty six SACs and fifty six field offices of the bureau. So if you have a director who is not above board or has political aspirations or political biases, he's going to choose those SACs that feel the same way that he does. So that's how it trickles down into mm -hmm. the FBI offices is the head of the offices is hand chosen by the director. And then that SAC, he picks his ASACs. Those ASACs pick their supervisors. So you can see that the, 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 the crap flows downhill. And it's starting to affect those street agents that want to do nothing but put bad people in jail. So we, the, the American people, have got to hold the FBI's feet to the fire. We have got to demand a change. We have got to hold our Department of Justice's feet to the fire. Because what's happening right now where the FBI, I feel, truly is a political arm of the Democratic Party has got to stop. That, that's a new phenomena, and it never happened before. We have got to get the Americans' trust back in the FBI, and right now it's not there. And and it's not – I mean, the challenge is, is even if it's a political arm of the Democratic – or a, a, like the arm of the Democratic Party right now, it could easily be the arm of anybody at any time – you know, the, the, these can go either way well, if, you, you if, we don't, norm. if we don't yeah. enforce, like, the neutrality of these types of organizations, right? It all starts with the director. Whoever the next president is has got to select a director who has a strong backbone, who knows that the buck stops at his desk, and he's apolitical, and his, his goal in life is to bring justice. That's all. Just justice. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you come from justice is justice and they just need to pick a director who is willing to stand up for that and, and and hold his feet you know hold his feet to the fire and make sure that he does that from the top down and it, it's not a it's not a difficult fix i really don't think it's a difficult fix it can be fixed but we need to have a director who's just really an effective leader and truly has no political biases in mind when, uh, when we had danny colson on the show he told the story i mean he i think he was pretty senior at the fbi at the time and it was someone from clinton's uh uh in the clinton administration and uh janet reno was in the room with the department of justice and uh and the person from the administration asked danny to open investigations into everybody who was protesting abortion clinics at the time and danny looked back at them and said i, I can't do that that's not constitutional and to her credit, he, he says Janet Reno backed him up and was like, yeah, he's he's right. Do you feel like that's the kind of uh, 
uh, mentality that's not happening right now, that there's not somebody, you know, putting their foot down and saying, hey, that's not who we are. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the uh, the parents of, you know, Loudoun County School District, you know, children yeah. uh, and being investigated by the Department of Justice because they stood up against a, a school board. Right. There, there, there's there is no investigation. There's no FBI violation there. So I, I, why is the FBI even involved in that? Um, so, I mean, I think this is a perfect example of, of how it's being corrupted right now. Right. And then you have people like Strzok and, you know, we, we talked about that a little bit that it's they get off with a with a light tap so it doesn't discourage any type of politically motivated behavior whomever is doing it and for whomever they're doing it for yeah and i'm gonna you know i'm gonna throw a bomb out there right now talk about january 6th real quick i mean why is the fbi investigating people for trespassing last time i checked trespassing is not against the united states code you know 18 usc is what is what the fbi investigates and charges people with trespassing is not a federal violation so why is the FBI even involved in this January 6th? I mean, if they're if they're going to be arrested for insurrection, then arrest them for insurrection. Mm-hmm. But to this point, I don't think there's been any cases for insurrection that I know of. It's all been trespassing. So, so it should be like a Capitol Police issue. Yeah. Uh, one of the complaints I heard uh, from a uh, retired FBI agent was that a lot of the agents uh, had a problem with the director of the FBI going down in front of Congress and talking about, um, I, I think w- when they decided not to charge Hillary, and they felt that that really politicized the FBI to have the director in front of Congress, kind of giving this sort of speech um, under under oath about uh, about that. Um, but certainly, yeah, I mean, it, it, there, there's definitely a public perception now that the FBI has been politicized. And I mean, from your point of view, you're saying it certainly has been. Well, when James Comey went on television, national television, to discuss the Hillary Clinton you know, investigation that they would not indict her or arrest her. That was unprecedented. Right. You, you, you've never seen an FBI director go on national television to talk about an investigation. That, mm-hmm. that was never done before. He broke every FBI rule and regulation there is. You know, he went on national television. And when you first heard the speech, it's like, oh, my gosh, they're going to arrest Hillary Clinton. And then he, he gives all the reasons why she should be arrested and then changes to and it says they're not going to arrest her because of whatever his reasoning was. I, right. I think but, a precedent was really the only thing he said. Yes. And, and, and look, I get that. Like I get, I get the precedent, like the going back to the precedent of like trying to impeach Bill Clinton, that sets impeachment up sort of as an, as a precedent. Right. And now we're going to see that probably every election cycle, whenever, you know, like I, I understand the precedent and not wanting to do it. Um, because it, 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 like, if you start arresting politicians, then it doesn't end because they're all pretty dirty. I, I'm actually okay with them arresting. I, politicians I honestly am too, but they do it as long as they the arrest board. everybody because they, because most of them would go to jail, honestly. Um, but like, I understand the precedent, the idea of, you know, not arresting because of a precedent, but also like you say, for him to do that, it. It, it's sort of like the meeting on the tarmac, right? Just uh, uh, discussing the emails with Bill. Like that's, it, it, yeah, that's it, just something that, that you can see how that should not be involved faith. in. Yeah. And the optics are horrible and it stinks. Right. The American people know. Yeah. Right. I uh, want to jump into some questions. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, 
So, uh, thank you, Jackson. Uh, what was your favorite part of Selection or Knots? <laughs> um, well, there is no favorite part of Selection. Did they still make you climb up to the top of the bow of the ship and then jump down into the water from like 90 feet? They do that, yeah. Over in uh, Little Creek, Virginia, we do a couple of days out in Little Creek. And they make you climb on, on a bridge wing of a very large ship and make you jump off. So, yeah. Like I said, if you're afraid of heights or spiders or snakes or dark spaces or confined spaces, any phobias you have, they're going to find them. Um, you know, but but knots, the best part of knots, uh, you know, is just developing those surgical shooting skills. Um, I mean, just, just to see your own development and getting better and better and better is very rewarding. Uh, you know, they had the best instructors in the world and they bring in the best instructors in the world. Again, when it comes to HRT, funding is never an issue. You always get the best training and the best equipment. So uh, that's probably the best part about knots is just getting all those toys and all that training and just knowing that uh, such a small percentage of the world gets that kind of training, that kind of equipment. Out of curiosity, in a lot of military organizations, the overall military has this sort of love-hate relationship with their special missions units. Uh, because they're envious of the funding and the capability and that they're sort of outside of the system, but also they love them for what they can brief <laughs> and bring to the table. Did you guys have that too with the FBI at large? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's a little bit of animosity between the SWAT teams and HRT. Um, you know, obviously, um, the, you know, some of the, the, lead, the senior leadership, you know, they, they don't want to release the 800 pound gorilla. So they're always hesitant to use, use us because they think we're heavy-handed. Right. Uh, so that was always a, you know, a, a sword you had to bear. Um, but for the most part, the guys that are on HRT, again, they're hand-selected. Uh, and, and for the most part, they have great personalities. You know, they're outgoing. They're gregarious. They're humble. So when you meet them in person, you know, the persona or the, the reputation that you're told that these people have is you know is not true that they actually you know they are good guys and they have good heads on their shoulders they're 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 special agents first they're hrt operators second uh and they have the best interest of the bureau and you know in their in their minds at all times and they're just generally good guys so you know we uh i like to think that we destroy a lot of um false information on us when they when they take the time to get to know us that you guys aren't just sitting there like throwing samsonite luggage down and jumping on it to see to test, <laughs> test the, uh, um uh, jackson thanks again uh how much did the gwat change the capabilities of hrt and how similar would you say hrt became to other tier one units after afghanistan and iraq um i'm not going to compare hrt to other tier one units i mean they they you know, their skill sets are, are far greater than ours. You know, we can run alongside them. Uh, and I like to think our CQB skills are equal to theirs. But, um, you know, they have skill sets, you know, that we would never be able to, to mimic only because that's not our mission. Mm -hmm. um, but the GWAT definitely changed um, the HRT's training regimen. I mean, just drastically. Dra I mean, you know, the, the knots course that I went through in 1999 versus the knots course now is completely different as well. Cause you know, now we do know what we have to do to work alongside those special mission units. And, 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 and you know, I think the training and operation 
for both CAG and for Dev Group as well has changed. I mean, you learn so much, you know, during, you know, during those operations, you know, real world operations, you learn so much. So, you know, our training, our equipment, how we go about things, uh, you know, for the HRT, I, 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 the amount of change I, I can't even begin to describe because it went from, you know, being, um, you know, looking at things strictly from a domestic terrorism, you know, hostage situation to now a, you know, you're looking in the hills of Tora Bora, right? Or you're in Fallujah, uh, looking for, you know, Saddam Hussein, uh, and, and those things are so vastly different from each other. So, yeah, great question, but yeah, HRT has changed so much in the last decade. Um, so Christian, uh, thank you very much. FBI, uh, HRT work at the Super Bowl, tr- uh, training. Well, and we we talked about that at length. Uh, Christian, I hope that answered your question. If not, ping us in the uh, in the chat. Uh, Danny, thank you. Does uh, FBI's hurt ever augment support the Secret Service, SRT, or counter assault team? Uh, my brother was a counter assault team operator when I was on HRT. Uh, so we actually they came to our shoot house. They helicoptered in our shoot house. We helicoptered in their shoot house. Um, so um, yeah, we we work alongside them uh, a little bit. Um, you know, if, if the president ever was taken hostage, I know the HRT would get the ticket on that much to the cat team's demise. Um, you know, the cat team has a very, specific, they have a very specific skill set. They really do. And again, my brother was a cat team operator for five years. Um, they have a very specific skill set, but hostage rescue is not one of them. Um, so they would defer to us, but, um, you know, we, I like to think that my brother and I had a, a large, uh, part of developing a close relationship between the CAC teams and HRT. Um, and what was the other part of the question with who else? Uh, the, uh, yeah, the SRT and CAT. So when you guys are like sitting in a bar drinking and talking shit about like other services, what are some of the things you guys say about the, uh, secret service? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. You know, I would not want their job. Uh, no. As my uh, brother said, he's, he spent way too much time standing in the stairwell. Yeah. So, um, Wiz Wiz, thank you very much. Any advice for those considering the FBI as a career? Um, if you're, uh, geez, be diverse. I mean, uh, take a boxing class, take a, you know, I, I love boxing. Uh, I think it's the best form of martial arts because that's where all fights start. Um, everybody goes to jujitsu, everybody goes ground fighting, which is a great skill to have. But uh, I would definitely learn how to take a punch and how to give a punch. And I think boxing does that for you. I would learn some medical skills. I would learn a foreign language. Um, if, um, uh, let's see, what else? Uh, if you can get some police experience or military experience, that helps. Um, but computer skills, that helps. So just get as much varied experience as you can. Um, now, I have heard that uh, for every one slot, at Quantico for a special agent, uh, there are 10,000 applicants. So I know it's very competitive. Wow. Um, Drew, thank you very much. Does HRT solely recruit prior tier one operators now these days? Yes, uh, there's a, there, are, there are like seven or eight ways to get to the FBI specialties. Uh, one's general, you, somebody like me, you know, you know, former military guy, but nothing, nothing special forces wise. Um, you have uh, pilots, you have linguists, you have computers, you have accounting, you have attorneys, 
those all get special consideration when they apply to the Bureau. They have now what's called uh, the Tactical Recruiting Program, TRP. So if you are a former member of the Special Forces or you're a member of a large city SWAT team, that will give you special consideration in getting into the FBI. Because what happened when I was on the team is that uh, they started recruiting a lot of linguists and computer operators and stuff like that to fight terrorism. Uh, when I came into the Bureau, half my class, so 25 to 50 people in my class, were former military or former police officers. Now, the HRT recruits a lot from those individuals. Well, halfway through my still in HRT, the class of 50 coming into the FBI Academy had like five former police officers and military officers. Oh, wow. So the HRT's pool to, to, to recruit from became very small. Mm -hmm. So the HRT actually went to headquarters and got them to to um, um, make up this tactical recruiting program where we could go out and actually get people with special skills, special consideration, so they can be hired by the Bureau. So answer your question on, on, uh, on the net there. Yes, uh, we do recruit highly from uh, those other units, um, from, from special mission units and, and rangers and stuff like that, Green Berets. So if somebody comes in from one of those units, uh, do they go straight to HRT or do they still they, – but it's like a pipeline where they have to go – they go to serve their time as a field agent and then come back? It's a pipeline only into the FBI. Okay. So there's no promises to make HRT. A lot of guys come in and they don't want to get HRT. They got into the bureau. They like what they're doing. They're seeing their family now. They're home at you know six o'clock at night. They're right. not being deployed. Their wives are very happy. So they say, I'm not going to go to HRT or try out. So the TRP, Technical Recruiting Program, gets you into the FBI. And once you're in, after that, it's totally up to you. If you try out for HRT, you start at ground zero like everybody else. There's no special consideration to get on the team. And what are generally like the minimum requirements to get into HRT to, to go to selection? Uh, again, only two years of experience uh, in the FBI. They like four or more, but only two-year minimum. And then you have to be invited. Okay. Um, uh, David Maynard, thank you very much for both your donations. And David asks, and we love you, David. Uh, what fictional FBI agent was the best and which one was the worst? <laughs> <laughs> um, the movie Heat and the movie uh, The Town are two movies that depict an FBI agent, both are bank robbery squads. I think both Heat, uh, I think it was Al Pacino that played that role. And then in The Town, it was... Uh, I forgot who played the FBI agent in the town. It's with Ben Affleck. He yeah, played a bank robber. Those, those two movies depict the FBI pretty much real world of the bank robbery squad. Um, and then the worst one is probably Sandra Bullock. <laughs> Where she, she's an FBI agent and becomes a beauty queen or something right, like that. Right, our, right, our, right. Our favorite, of course, is the one that's based off Danny Coulson. Yeah. Uh, agent Coulson of S.H.I.E.L.D. Hey, of S.H.I.E.L.D., yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, Agent Coulson literally was yeah. based the, on the writers, Coulson. The writers of the Marvel films, they would, uh, he was telling us they'd take down his, his book, his memoir, and like flip through it to get like lines of dialogue, like some inspiration for uh for agent colson who's named after him um and so what are you up oh and also uh we have a couple questions i, on I got it on there uh let me look at those real quick um okay uh isaac asked 
he has a couple questions, so we'll just we'll get a couple of them. Um, so he says, uh, I'm a 29-year-old uh, computer information systems major my second year of state, and I plan on getting my master's in cybersecurity. Couldn't join the military. Jack and Dave might know, know my story. I want to get into the intelligence community, but the truth is I'm having trouble deciding what agency to apply for. I want to do cyber operations, and I want to do special operations like you guys did, but I don't know what to do. I mean, FBI is huge into that field, aren't they? Yes. No, I, you know, um, I, I wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. I'd apply to all the agencies. Um, you know, ICE has a great cyber uh, platform. Secret Service has a great cyber, you know, uh, element. Uh, of course, CIA, FBI. So, you know, once you get into one and get that security clearance, it's a lot easier to transfer to another agency if you, if you chose to do that. So I, I would not put all your eggs in one basket, only apply to one agency, apply to them all and see who, you know, see what happens. And then uh, did you ever work for the GSG-9? And, uh, and if so, what were they like? Uh, you know, we, we did a lot of cross-trade with GSG-9 and, uh, and RED in France and the GIGN in France, uh, Australian SAS, the British SAS. So, you know, we cross train with a lot of them. We do a lot of fun things, you know, like when we do uh, like mountain warfare training or rock climbing, we'll do a lot of that with those other agencies. Um, I know uh, prior to me getting on the team, they used to have uh, counterterrorism uh, like Olympic games mm -hmm. that GSG9 um, hosted. I know HRT participated in those. Um, and I know that uh, a good friend of mine who's a former HRT operator who participated in those Olympic games uh, it's still very good friends with, with some retired GSG nine guys. So, and then when we we're when we we're over in Iraq as well, we always went by their camp, and they came to our camp, and we would share share beers together and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. And uh, one last question from Artie. Thank you very much, Artie. Personally, I think White Chicks was the best FBI representation. <laughs> and that, wasn't that the Wayne Brothers? That was the Wayne yeah, Brothers. It is. <laughs> so, um, so. Greg, talk to us about what post-retirement life has, has been like for you and what you've been up to since uh, getting out of the FBI. Well, I started my own security company. It's called Schaefer Security Group. It's based out of here, out of Dallas, Texas. Um, and I do a lot of security consulting, a lot of risk management. Uh, one of the things I'm doing now is a lot on uh, active shooter response training, active shooter response um, consulting. Um, I was a part of the Parkland prosecuting team. Um, I'm looking to get involved with some other instances that occurred recently and, and, and their, um, you know, their lawsuits against people who didn't do what they're supposed to do. Um, we do a lot of special event security. Uh, I have uh, upwards about 25 guys that uh, are subcontractors that I can call on to help me out. Um, we do some executive protection. We do a lot of politicians actually for the executive protection. But for the most part, um, I do all, a lot of consulting, risk management, um, a lot of uh, you know going to corporations and training their individuals and training their staff and their leaders and how to um, not only respond to active shooters but how to implement act, you know counteractive shooter you know, policies and procedures. Um, I did write a book, um, Security Secrets for Today's Dangerous World. Stay safe. Uh, actually, it's doing very well. Um, and in this book, I talk about one survival mindset, situational awareness, everyday carry. I talk about um, security in offices, church security, school security, 
Uh, you know, again, how do you respond to actual shooter events and acts of violence? Um, you know, the book really is for the layman. Uh, so if you have kids going to college or high school kids, I uh, highly recommend that book. Um, you know, I, I like to think that it has made a difference in a lot of people's lives. I do a lot of speaking at schools, not only to the teachers, but also to the students. And then I always try to bring in the parents of the students for an evening event. Uh, I love getting the parents involved, letting them know how to keep their kids safe, telling them to hold the teacher's feet to the fire and the administrator's feet to the fire because the amount of active shooter response training in schools, when it does happen, most of it's happening very poorly and it's not happening enough. So um, I guess my, my focus right now is just school safety. You know, with what happened at Parkland, what happened in Uvalde, and what's happening across uh, our great nation is, is just, it's horrific. And I do think that we can stop this scourge of killing. I think we can um, do things to recognize those pre-incident indicators of violence. I do think it's a mental health issue. I think it's a counseling issue. I think it's a church issue. I think it's a family issue. And I think it's a gun issue and all those rolled into one. And one, one answer is not gonna be the right answer. This is a, a, a multitude a multifaceted issue, which is going to have a multifaceted answer. What What are some, it's just like an elevator pitch for people, like just lay people out there to stay safe? Well, first and foremost, is just have good situational awareness. I mean, just know who and what's happening around you. You have good situational awareness, and it's a trained skill. It's not difficult. It's very easy to develop. But most people just go through life with blinders. You know, most people have not been a victim of violence. So their response is this. It's not going to happen to me. Well, it's not going to happen to me. It's not a good plan. You have to be, you know, here's the, here's the analogy I use. We all know we've been told since we're three years old. Should our clothes catch on fire, we spontaneously combust. How do we save ourselves if we catch on fire? We do stop, three stop, things. And yeah. Stop, stop, and roll. Yeah. Right. Perfect. Now, Personally, I can't think of a worse way to die than burn, than burn to death. But I have, a plan, I have a plan in place. If I catch on fire, I know how to save myself. I'm going to stop, drop, and roll. Well, we need to do the same thing for violence. We need to have a plan of action in our mind so that our body will go where our mind has already gone. Because mm -hmm. I teach that the body won't go where the mind has never been. Mm -hmm. Most people don't think about what will happen while I'm in this restaurant and somebody pulls out a gun. They don't think about what they should do. If they just took 10, 15 seconds to think about it, if that event ever does occur, their mm -hmm. body will respond to where their mind took them to earlier. The body won't go where the mind has never been. So I stress that really hard in my presentations and my lectures because I think it will help save lives. If you think about what you will do, when the time comes to do it, you will do it because you thought about it. And not, you know, having that, it'll never happen to me. Um, you know, thought, you know, security plan is not a security plan at all. I think, uh, you know, I heard a, Pat McNamara says something that's like very simple, but also like very profound when you really think about it. He's saying when you look at someone, you're immediately depriving them of their greatest weapon, which is their element of surprise. Mm -hmm. Just by looking exactly. at them. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm a living testament to, to being blindsided and not having my head on a swivel. So, you know, I don't know if you know, but like a couple of years ago, I got assaulted on the subway because I was, there was nobody else on the car. It was late at night. I was reading a book and didn't see somebody get on with a rock. So, you know, and, and it's just letting your guard down and it doesn't mean being paranoid all the time. Yeah. Right. You it's know. not paranoia. Right. It's relaxed awareness. And, yeah, and, yeah. 
And your your statement of the body won't go where the mind say that one more time. The body won't go where the mind has never been. It's it. I mean, it's a brilliant statement because even when you consider like Olympic athletes and how much time they spend, like just in the visualization process yeah, visualize, exactly. uh, of, of like doing the perfect pole vault or doing the perfect hurdle that, that if you just imagine yourself in those situations and reacting that you're sort of training yourself. Exactly. You're exactly right. right. Uh, if if people want to have you come and speak at their school or function or they want to get a hold and hire your your security service or your security company services, uh, where can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? They can email me uh, at greg at schaefersecuritygroup.com or they can go to my website, which is schaefersecuritygroup.com. The trick is to spell Schaefer correctly. It's S-H-A-F-F-E-R. So www.schaefersecuritygroup.com contact us and I'll get an email uh, or heck I'll put my cell phone out there. Call me at 469-279-2696. I'll take your call directly. Awesome. Um, and we have two more questions just popped up. Uh, Christian, thank you very much. What type of helicopters do the FBI use? We use MD-530 Little Birds. We use Bell 420s and we use the Blackhawks. And then David Maynard, thanks again. Uh, what is the oddest skill you got trained on but never thought you would use, but then had to, like rock climbing or whatever. Um, well, one of the fun with lot picking, that's kind of a fun skill set to learn, how to pick lots. Yeah. Did you ever get an opportunity to use that real world? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Did you fumble? Like, <laughs> was it tough because you hadn't been practicing it, or did you like, like breeze in? Uh, I mean, it took the amount of time I thought it would take. I mean, um, again, the more, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So I think I was able to pick a lock in under a minute. That's impressive. So uh, coming up on Tuesday, we're having another former FBI agent on the show. Uh, I don't know if you know him or not, Holden Triplett. He is the former director of counterintelligence at the National Security Council, uh, served in the FBI, uh, FBI office in Beijing, uh, second in command in Moscow, um, a lot of experience, 15 years in the FBI. So that's, that's coming up on Tuesday. And mm-hmm. then on Friday, uh, Chad McCoy, who served in 24th STS with the Air Force. Both in studio. Okay. Both, they're both in studio guests, which is oh, we're getting drunk. super nice. cool. Yeah. And, and Greg, I hope, you know, if you're ever coming through New York, you'll hit us up and, you know, you're welcome to come here, smoke cigars with us anytime. I'd love to, guys. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you guys. I love your show. Your guest, your, your guest list is just truly uh spectacular i'm humbled that you had me on your show thanks man. knowing that you're looking at your previous guests i mean i can't hold a candle what they've done in the past and uh thank you for what you do putting the word out there and god bless you guys and have a great holiday season coming up thank you and we're you humbled too. that you come on and, and spend your friday night with us yeah. and, and our audience so thank you very much my pleasure guys all right guys Stay we'll safe. see you tuesday and then on friday take care Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.